hello everyone and welcome to uh, worship at Grace. We're really, really glad you're here. We're in a series right now called Jesus Champion of His Church. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word church, but I believe that the church may be one of the most misunderstood organizations in all the world. I think some people have just kind of written the church off as a bunch of people who are hopelessly out of touch, and even worse, so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Well, I beg to differ. In fact, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, but not only that, people are not likely to really get to know Jesus unless they do it through a healthy local church. That's the best chance, the best possibility for someone to encounter Jesus through a group of his followers in a healthy community serving him, worshiping him, working for him. Jesus is indeed the champion of his church. But what is he really looking for in his community of believers? I want today to talk to you about five qualities God is looking for in his community of followers. And I believe every one of these flows right out of today's text from Luke chapter 13. They're either implied there or you can draw this as an inference from the text. And again, let me say, if you're kind of new to the church, I'm really glad you're here for this series because I'm hoping that it will clarify and help clear up some of the things you may be wondering about. What is the church really about? Who are we? What do we believe? What is, what is this whole Christianity thing about? And today's message we're calling People Matter to God because that's kind of the overarching theme of this whole section here. So let's kind of go on this journey Together, you may want to jot some ideas down or write in some words on that note sheet that's on the back of your bulletin today. The first adjective that I would throw at you, this first word that I think comes right out of the text here, God is looking for a church, a, a community that is expanding. Now, where do I get that? Well, Jesus uses two short parables here, and both of them speak of the expanding, transforming nature of God's kingdom work. So let's dive in at verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Now, the mustard seed is one of the tiniest of all the seeds. It looks like a little tiny speck of dirt if you put it on your fingertip. But the point is, when it's planted in good soil in the garden, it grows to be rather large. It's a very large shrub-type tree, and it's as big as some of our dogwood trees, and birds can certainly come and nest in its branches. And Jesus is just saying here, look, the growth is massive in comparison to the small beginning of that little mustard seed. But he goes on, verse 20. Again, he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like 
yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with yeast. Some of you, no doubt, use it in cooking, bread, and other things. But you just put a little bit of yeast in this dough and work it through, and that little bit of yeast will make this loaf rise. It grows. It expands. Now, please get the picture of what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God, God's work through Christ in this world began in a very tiny way, a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And some years later, this baby who'd grown into a man began to call followers. He was the unique God-man, and he began to call men and women to follow him. And so he had 12 apostles that he poured his life into, and there were a number of other disciples, men and women, who he was whom he was teaching about the kingdom of God. But by the time he was crucified, at the age of 33, there were about 120 committed disciples who met in that upper room waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, you can read about this in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit was indeed poured out just as Joel and other prophets had prophesied And here's what happened. Those 120 believers were empowered to share their faith and talk about Jesus in such an amazing way that, get this now, it's staggering, because the little tiny mustard seed is now really growing. The yeast is really expanding. They saw 3,000 people baptized, saved, added to the church that very day. But the kingdom is still growing. You read on in the book of Acts, you get to chapter 4, verse 4, it says that there were 5,000 men at this point. And when you add, do the numbers and kind of add women and children, you can conservatively say there were at least 20,000 people in the church and it continues to grow. And by the time you get to Acts 17, verse 6, we read that some of the opponents in the city in Thessalonica said, these people have caused trouble all over the world, and they've now come here. The picture is that the tiny mustard seed is now massive, and the yeast has worked quietly to impact the whole batch of dough. God's looking for a community that is expanding and understands that People matter to God, and so we're constantly seeking to reach one more, and one more, and one more. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Grace Fellowship's beginning, but we started about 25 years ago, and you know, in many ways, it's been an amazing trajectory. Deb and I started with four couples meeting in our one-bedroom apartment just up the road here in Latham Village Apartments. And from that beginning, we launched public services in a storefront building, nothing impressive. I stood on an eight-inch aerobics platform and preached for over three years at that location. That was the platform. That was the stage. But in three years' time, God added 500 people to the church. And scores of people were baptized, and people were coming to Christ, and marriages were being mended, and families that were broken were being put back together. It was incredible in the 
mustard seed is growing. By the time we were eight years old, we had 1,034 people average on the weekend. And today, by God's grace, as he continues to save lives, we have over 3,000 people that meet every weekend among our four campuses who are red hot for Jesus Christ and looking to serve him as their Lord. God's looking for people that are expanding. Now listen, sometimes I'm asked, and I think it's a good question, does the church always have to grow, Pastor Rex? If it's healthy, is it always going to be growing? Now, uh, most people will immediately respond to that, absolutely, yes, and they'll quote little proverbs like, if you're green, you're growing, if you're blue, you're through, uh-huh. Every living thing grows, don't you know? So if a church isn't growing, that means it is stone dead. Well, I get the reasoning, but I want to push back a little bit. Because while, yes, we should have a bias toward growth, and that is God's desire, because the gospel is still the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We should never forget that. Please understand that some of the most godly men and women I have ever known are leading in churches that aren't growing. They're prayer warriors. They love the Lord with all their heart. You say, well, why is it not growing? There's lots of reasons that it may not grow. Their methodology could be inappropriate to reach their area. They're not thinking missionally, perhaps. It could be that there's just some intense sin and immorality in the church that's kind of holding it back and they can't have a breakthrough. It could be, and this is often the case, that there's some crotchety, immature board members who are just wrecking the thing and frustrating leadership and all of these things and many others we could list hold that church back. So don't always say that a church has to grow. If it's healthy, sometimes it may go through seasons of time when it's not growing. But we must always have a, a bias for growth. When we represent Jesus well, when we present his gospel and teach his word, we should expect people to come to Christ. That should be the norm. And if that is not happening, it is abnormal. Let's always remember that. Anytime you talk about growth, somebody will pipe up and say, Pastor, it's just all about numbers for you. It's not about the numbers. Because every one of those numbers represents a soul that Jesus died for. And if we really get the heart of God and what he's saying here, we should understand that God's desire is for his community to expand and grow. And there are people all around us today who desperately need that. They desperately need the gospel. But secondly, a second word that I think is just jumping out of this text is the word truthful. Truthful. God wants his people, his community, his church to be a place where the truth is spoken in love. Or you could put it differently, where grace and truth are brought together in perfect balance. Look at verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, the general understanding among the Jewish people at that time is that just about every Jewish person was going to be saved except for the worst of the worst. And that just about every 
non-Jewish person, every Gentile, was not going to be saved, with the exception of some extraordinary people of faith like, you know, uh, Ruth and Rahab and people like that. In fact, the Mishnah, which is uh, sort of a commentary, if you will, and an application of Jewish law, stated, and I quote, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. For it is written, thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And these are they that have no share in the world to come. So he gives three categories of people who will not go to heaven, who won't have a part in the afterlife. And he says here, the first category is those who say that there is no resurrection of the dead as prescribed in the law. And he that says that the law is not from heaven, it's not God's word. And number three is the Epicurean, that person that just lives to satisfy their own selfish, carnal desires. So the crowd expected Jesus' answer to go along with that, to affirm that just about all Jews except the worst of the worst would be saved and just about all Gentiles would not be. I'm staggered today by our popular beliefs in our country. George Barna did a survey, a poll of random cross-section of Americans and found that 44% of Americans say that all people experience the same outcome after they die regardless of their religious beliefs. 44% apparently believe that. But what does Jesus say about that? If he wants his community to be a place that's truthful, where truth is spoken, what does he say? Before we read that, I want to share a, what I think is a great analogy that Pastor Bob Russell shared. He said, imagine that you're on the Titanic, and you feel as it hits the iceberg, you know something has happened, but you don't really know what, and so you're a little disoriented, but you're looking for answers, so you go up on the deck, and you hear four people in a conversation. Each has a different view. And the first person says, we have hit an iceberg. I've examined it. There is a gaping hole toward the bottom of the ship. We're taking on water rapidly. We have probably no more than two hours, and the ship is going to sink. We've got to do everything we can to get people in lifeboats. That's the first person. Second person pipes up and says, no, 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 that's such a negative message. This is a huge ship. We are never going to sink. Don't you know? The Titanic is the unsinkable ship. So don't be so negative. We just need to focus on the positive. A third person says, well, I acknowledge that there's a problem here. But you know, I believe that there's other boats that are going to come and save us. And so the third person is focusing on their other ways to be saved. Let's just wait for them. And then the fourth person says, let's get a crew together and go down and patch the hole. Let's go down. Let's save ourselves. We don't have to go down. Let's fix it. Let's be our own salvation. Now, which of those are you going to listen to? By the way, I failed to tell you that the first person who is speaking is the captain of the ship. He knows the ship intimately, its whole design. He has personally checked out the gaping hole 
and he's speaking with conviction. Who are you going to listen to? It's important because your whole salvation and probably that of your family is in the balance here with what you choose. And I think if you're wise, you listen to the captain's counsel. So remember that what we're about to read comes from the one who died and came to life again. He conquered the grave. He's the only one who is Lord of all. Everybody else you're listening to is merely mortal. And here's what Jesus said in verse 23. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's like a kick in the face. Why be so negative? He's, Jesus is implying here that the majority of his hearers are not going to make it. What a shock that must have been. But it's consistent with things he said in other places. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate. And narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus, are you saying that it's not just the Hitlers and the Mansons and the Osama Bin Ladens and the Jezebels of the world that are going to be lost? Jesus is implying here, in fact, I think he's straight out teaching that the majority of people will not be saved. Say, Pastor, come on, that's so negative, that's so narrow. No, that's, that's truthful. That's the truth, and the most loving thing we can do, because people matter to God, the most loving thing the church can do is tell the truth about what Jesus said and what the Bible teaches. Jesus said there's not a multitude of ways to be saved. He also taught that you can't save yourself and ever be good enough to earn God's salvation? If that were true, he made a horrible mistake dying on the cross, don't you think? Or if just believing in a divine being were enough, Jesus made a tragic mistake. God the Father, what was he thinking when he was thinking about the cross where Jesus died for us? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the message gets even more interesting as we read on. Jesus also says here that once the opportunity to be saved is over, there's no second chance. Verse 25. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Just as God shut the door to Noah's ark once the rain came and no one could enter, once you die, friend, or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, once that happens, it's too late. That's why the urgency of our message is so intense. We're pleading with men and women, please, Come to Christ. He's the way. He's the door. Yes, it's narrow. But that's the truth. Please yield your life to him today. It's 
appointed for a person once to die, and after that comes judgment. No reincarnation, no mulligans, no second go-arounds, no second chances. That's the truth. But he goes on here, and he says about salvation that those who have a surface acquaintance with him, many of them will be lost. Verse 26, then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. Man, we hung out with you, Jesus. We went to worship services. We thought we kind of lived in a Christian nation, you know. Hey, we thought we had Judeo-Christian values. Hey, we thought you were pretty cool. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. In other words, not everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian or attends a church will be saved. That's a consistent message in the Bible, by the way. And for those who are not saved and are separated from God, it will be agonizing. He says in verse 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. You say, well, I don't want to hear about that. I don't like to talk about that. (laughs) That makes two of us. But it's the truth. And so we have to love people enough to be truthful with them. Max Lucado writes, to say that there is no hell is to say that God condones the rebellious heart. To say there's no hell is to say that God doesn't care that people are beaten and massacred, that women are raped and families wrecked. To say there's no hell is to say that God has no justice, no sense of right and wrong, and eventually to say that God has no love, for true love hates what is evil. Hell is the ultimate expression of a just creator. Now, please don't miss my main point. Because people matter to God... We must be always seeking to expand and reach one more, and we must always be truthful, speaking the truth in love, because that is the way to really show that we care. Thirdly, God desires his community to be, get this one, diverse, diverse. I find this quite interesting. Verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south. And will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. So in other words, the community that God is building is going to represent all kind of ethnicities. And everyone, no matter what your background or ethnicity, what's your place of origin, you are embraced and welcomed. The book of Revelation makes it very clear that in those throne scenes in heaven, there are, there are people there from every tribe and language and nation on the earth. We'll all be together. So I'm kind of excited that we have four congregations that are growing in diversity. That's exciting, but we want to see that trend continue. I would say that our Latham congregation is actually leading the way in diversity. I checked into this some time back. And just as far as I can tell, there's at least, there's probably more by now. This was some time ago I did this checking. But there are at least 40 different ethnicities represented, countries of origin represented in the Latham congregation alone. And I think that is awesome. And again, we want to see that continue. 
We must be a community where people matter. As someone put it rather crassly, the church is in the people business. And we forget that to our own peril. It's all about people. Because there's only two things that are going to survive the planet. The word of God and people. We're going to go on living forever somewhere. And so I want you to know that if you've ever felt kind of marginalized or shut out, I hope you'll find the church to be a place where you are embraced, where people befriend you, whether you're an up and outer or a down and outer, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're a New York Giants fan or a normal person. I think that this should be a place where you are embraced and where you really feel loved. Fourthly, God's community must be a place, just right here in the text, these are just coming right out of the text, where God's people are tough, tough. Verse 31, look at what happened here. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. <laughs> now imagine that. Herod was a despotic ruler, and he had had so many people executed, including John the Baptist. And everyone knew there was a connection between John the Baptizer, who had had this ministry out in the wilderness of a baptism for the remission of sins, and people would come in repentance and be immersed by John. Everyone knew that these guys were connected. In fact, they were cousins. And so John had been the forerunner of Jesus and had paved the way for Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist had dared to challenge Herod's lifestyle and morality, and he had been executed. So Herod here is suspicious of Jesus. He's looking for an opportunity to kill this itinerant prophet, Jesus. But Jesus refused to be intimidated by Herod's political clout. Verse 32, he replied, go tell that fox. I kind of like that. Now, a fox is a cunning and crafty creature. And so in Hebrew parlance, in this Aramaic world, Hebrew parlance here, this is like uh, an expression of utter contempt for Herod. It's really what it is. You go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What is he saying? Jesus is saying, in essence, look, Herod can squawk all he wants to. He can try to intimidate, but I am not going to be deterred from my mission. That's what he's saying. I'm going to keep on point. I'm going to keep focused. I'm going to keep preaching and healing and doing the work of the ministry. And I know where it's leading. And I'm not going to let his intimidation rush me in any way and change the timetable or the destination. In a word, Jesus is tough. And as we represent Jesus... We honestly need to be tough as well. When we get criticism and pushback, 
when our message or our values or our morality is not politically correct, we've got to not be intimidated by that. But continue to be truthful, to continue to bring grace and truth together in perfect balance. We don't want to become vindictive now. We don't want to start using human weapons to fight back. No, we want to keep on seeking the best for people because people matter to God. You remember in Luke 6 that we studied some weeks ago, Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. Are any of you insulted, hated by someone, excluded? And reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. What are you supposed to do? Rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their fathers treated the prophets. So let me say to you today. When you came to Christ. Those of you who are Jesus followers. I hope somebody didn't paint a picture for you. Like following Jesus was going to be like a little walk in the park. I hope they didn't do that because they set you up bad if they did. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. We must tell people the truth that following Christ is hard. In fact, apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit, can I, can I really be brutally honest? It is impossible. And we've got to make sure that people get that understanding. It's not just about getting fire insurance, praying a little prayer, giving a nod to God, putting a tip in an offering play, playing a little prayer, going to church at Christmas and Easter. That's not Christianity. It is a daily looking to Jesus, depending on him. It is daily seeking to walk in the spirit and represent him well. It is a whole life bent on glorifying him. And the Bible says that if we live that way at the proper time, we're going to reap a harvest if we don't give up. But there's one final word here I want to share with you. We've seen expanding, truthful, diverse, tough. And the final word that I see here in this text that that should characterize the community of believers that God is looking to build. I'm talking about us, the church, those of us who call ourselves Christians. The final word is caring. Caring. Probably the number one story this week was all the stuff happening at the border, right? And all the outcry of that is we're seeing children taken away from parents and that kind of thing and and I'm so happy about the outcome of that and the uh, change of policy that was put in place but whatever your political persuasion whatever putting all politics aside here's something that excited me whether you believe our borders need to be Uh, you know, more impenetrable or less, whether you agree with current policies or not, here's something that excited me that I saw in Christians all across our country. When they saw babies being taken away from moms, there's something in your heart that goes, oh, not good, not good. That hurts because God loves families. 
and God loves children. No matter what your political beliefs, you've got to be moved when you see human suffering and anguish. And so if you feel that in your heart, guess what? Wonderful. That's God in you moving you to compassion. Over and over again, we see it in the life of Jesus. Over and over again, it says he was moved with compassion. And let me ask you today, do things that you see around you here in the Capital District move you with compassion? When you come to understand that the bodies of women and children are bought and sold within a 10-minute drive of where you're sitting right now, what does that do to you when you know that? Well, if Jesus is in you, that should move you to compassion. You should want to weep over that. You should want to do more than just feel compassion. You should want to do something about that. That's why we're not just a voice box for God. We seek to be the hands and feet of the Lord wherever we find ourselves. We should ask God to break our hearts over the things that break his heart. Now, notice what happened here with Jesus Verse 34, this is an example of the incredible caring and compassion in his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When I fly into Albany International Airport, sometimes after dark, been on a trip somewhere, flying back in, ready to land at the airport, and I look out at the glimmering lights of the Capitol District, sometimes my mind goes to this passage, and I think, wow, Most of those lights down there like represent a home or some place where people work or live or go to school or play sports or inhabit that area. And man, there's a lot of people down there that are like sheep without a shepherd. And I'll literally, in those moments, I'll say, God, would you break my heart? Would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? Would you renew my passion Would you renew the caring that I have for people who don't know you yet? Because the most loving thing I can do, since I've come into a saving relationship with you, the most loving thing I can possibly do is share that with someone else and try to help them find that same relationship. And that's why we'll never stop. We'll never, ever, ever stop doing that. That's the kind of caring heart that launched this church as God gave that small group of people a desire to see people saved, and that's the kind of heart that we still need today. So let me close by asking you this. What really gets you excited? (laughs) What really pumps you up? Is it seeing your 401k grow? That's a pretty cool thing. You got one of those? What excites you? Is it the latest Netflix original series that you can binge on? That can be fun. 
way to spend a weekend? What really gets you excited? Is it your sports team? Is it romance? Is it dating? Is it some hobby that you have? Is it shopping? I think shopping is what they're going to do in hell personally. But if shopping excites you, I'm just saying there's nothing wrong with that. Shopping? What is it? What is it that just really gets you fired up? Whatever that is. Here's my point. Whatever that is, it ought to be a pale second to sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with people and seeing them come to know him. That's what it's all about. Because people matter to God. And as Paul the Apostle said, the love of Christ compels us to share. We cannot love God and love people without sharing that message with them. So may we never lose the wonder. The wonder of the cross. May we never lose the wonder that God in all of his awesome holiness and almighty power, cared enough about people that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. May we never lose the wonder of that because people matter to God. Lord, passages like this feel like a good old holy kick in the face. They wake us up. And Lord, may they do more than just shock us. I pray that you would use passages like this, words straight from the lips of our Lord, and you would excite us about the things that excite you, and break our hearts over the things that break your heart. Oh, Lord. May we be an expanding place, a truthful place, a diverse place, Lord, as we continue to grow in diversity. May we be a place, O oh Lord, where you are lifted high, where people can see you for who you really are and come to know you as their Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's continue in worship. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers forward right now.